For those that don't, uh, of you who might be new and don't know me, I'm Thomas Kovacs. I'm the associate pastor here, the number two guy on staff of a staff of two at Summit Bible Church. I am filling in pulpit supply for our teaching pastor, Morgan Maitland, while he is gone. And this morning, we are going to be in 2 Peter, so I invite you to turn your Bibles to 2 Peter in chapter 1. Just as a little introduction with regard to the epistles of Peter, there's two in our Bible written by the Apostle, and both of them are written to stress the importance of endurance for the Christian. Peter's aim in each letter was to encourage Christians to remain steadfast in their faith in Christ and to live in such a way that brings glory to him. It's really the main thrust of each of these epistles. And in his first epistle, he, he wrote to equip Christians to righteously persevere through persecution and unjust suffering. And in his second epistle, he wrote to equip Christians to righteously withstand the ungodly influence of false teachers. Now, in this second epistle, Epistle of Peter, which we're going to be in this morning, the, the apostle makes the following statement in verses 14 and 15 of chapter 1. I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. In other words, Peter wrote this letter knowing that he would soon be martyred, crucified, as the Lord had revealed to him long before. And so essentially, these are his, his parting words for the church. Knowing that the appointed time had come for his earthly ministry to end, the Holy Spirit moved Peter to put out his final written message for the benefit of the body of Christ. His message is essentially both a reminder of God's will for Christians to be growing in their sanctification and a warning for them to not be led astray from this purpose. To not be led astray by false Christians who live ungodly lives and deny the reality of the coming day of judgment. So this reminder and warning from Peter is needed really just as much today as it was when Peter first gave it. For there continues to be no shortage of persons who, who seek to teach and influence the church while they themselves have no real interest in personal repentance and holiness and obedience to Christ. They want to be influencers. They want to be teachers. But they have no interest in personal holiness and obedience to Christ. The very end of Peter's epistle contains a concise summary of his overall instruction, right at the very end. And he says this, Take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That really is the message of this letter. 
So with that in mind, let's now read the opening of his letter, which is our passage for this morning that we're going to focus on. We're going to specifically focus on verses 3 through 11, but I'll just, we'll start in verse 1 as we read the text. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you an, in an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So after reading all of that, here is the, the big idea of this passage. Essentially, we could sum it up this way. The Savior's grace enables our spiritual growth. And it's our spiritual growth which proves that we are on stable ground with respect to our hope of salvation. And that's basically the outline with some alliteration thrown in there. But the Savior's grace enables our spiritual growth, and that pro proves that we are on stable ground with respect to our hope of salvation. So in verses 3 through 4, that's where we see the provision of the Savior's grace. In verse 3, we read, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We have, in other words, all that we need for life and godliness because He, the Lord Jesus, granted it to us. He has enabled us by his divine power to live a godly life. This empowerment is not something that 
we must wait around for and hope to get through some future special spiritual experience later in life. It was granted to us at the moment of conversion, his power giving us everything we need to live a godly life. And as we see in the the second half of verse 3, it has come through, this power has come through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Knowing uh, Knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and having a personal saving relationship with him through faith is the means by which we have been equipped and empowered by him for godliness. Knowing him, savingly knowing him through faith, is the means by which we have been equipped and empowered by him for godliness. And godliness is a reflection of his own glory and excellence, and Peter says it is to that end we have been called, called to his own glory and excellence. According to the Apostle Paul, we were predestined to be conformed to Christ's image. And we will be made perfect after we are raised from the dead. That, he says, is the goal of the prize of the upward call in Christ Jesus. That is the goal. Paul said, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, 1 Corinthians 15. And according to the Apostle John, speaking of the future, John said, we shall be like him when we see him as he is. Now, Peter says in in verse 4 that it is by virtue of Christ's glory and excellence that we have received such precious and very great promises. And such promises are not only concerning our future glorification, as we just heard from Scripture. They also include our future inheritance. If you look at verse 11, Peter speaks of our entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's a precious promise. And in chapter 3, Peter speaks of the promise of the Lord's future return and destruction of the ungodly in the day of judgment. He also says in verse 13 of chapter 3, but according to his promise... We are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. These are precious and very great promises. The promise of our future glorification, the promise of our future entrance into Christ's eternal kingdom, the promise of our future dwelling in a world that Christ has made new and perfect. The Apostle Peter says in verse 4 that Christ has granted us these promises so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, becoming partakers of the divine nature does not mean that we become divine. This isn't Mormonism. This isn't the uh, little God's theology, some bizarre teaching in the Word of Faith movement and other charismatic circles does not mean we become divine. The divine nature in this context is referring to the moral qualities of God 
that were perfectly displayed in Christ, who is God the Son. And Peter said in verse 3 that we were called to Christ's own glory and excellence. And the Greek word translated as excellence refers to exceptional, praiseworthy character. Excellence refers to exceptional, praiseworthy character here in this context. Now, we will ultimately be perfectly conformed to the image of Christ and possess perfect Christ-like character when we are glorified and dwell in his everlasting righteous kingdom. But what Peter is saying here is, is that the hopeful promises concerning this future should motivate us to practice and thus participate in the moral qualities of Christ here and now. Practice and participate in the moral qualities of Christ, his excellence here and now. And the good news is that we are able to do this. Having been saved by his grace, we have, as, Paul, or as Peter said, escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. By his grace, we have escaped that corruption. We are no longer spiritually dead and hostile to God. We are no longer enslaved to our, spiritual, or to our sinful desires. We are no longer under the control of Satan and the rest of the demonic realm. We have been given a new heart that desires to honor and obey Christ, and we have been given the Holy Spirit who empowers us to grow in godliness, that is, Christ-likeness. We have been enabled. And having considered the provision of the Savior's grace in verses 3 through 4, we're now going to look at the next section and consider the, the pursuit of spiritual growth in verses 5 through 7. So Peter moves us towards application in light of what he's just said. He says, for this, in verse 5, for this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. And then he lists out seven Christ-like qualities that we should be striving to excel in. Having been saved by grace through faith in Christ, it is the Lord's will for us to now grow in conformity to his likeness until the day he, he brings that work to completion and glorifies us. But he's called us to start on that now. Those whom God has justified, he will indeed glorify. And in between those two events, the Lord is sanctifying us. It's in this middle stage that the Christian life is, is lived out. It's the stage of growing up and maturing in Christ. We have our, our new birth. We are by grace given spiritual life, granted repentance and faith. We are born from above. We are babes in Christ. And then the entire Christian life is the growing up stage until our glorification, which the Lord does in the end, and we are perfectly mature and conformed to his image. But in the meantime, we are called to participate with the Lord in his sanctifying work in us by actively trusting and obeying his good, pleasing, and perfect will for our lives. You see, you don't contribute to your justification. That's the Lord's doing, your salvation. He saves you by grace. 
By the Spirit, you're given spiritual life. You're made alive, and you repent and believe the gospel. And you also, you don't contribute anything to your glorification. The Lord sees that through. But during this middle stage, you participate in the Lord's work in you, in sanctifying you. And you participate by actively trusting and obeying his will. That's really what it means to, uh, to be filled with the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit. The Apostle Peter says, make every effort, in verses 5 through 7, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So in 5 through 7, in verses 5 through 7, Peter presents us with seven Christ-like qualities that will fortify our faith. These qualities are a package deal. All of them are essential. Peter says we ought to make every effort to supply our faith with these qualities. And now as we consider this section, here's what we need to keep in mind. We need to keep in mind that Christ's divine power grants us the ability to possess these qualities. We are supplied by his power to supply our faith with every one of these qualities. Therefore, knowing this, we have no reason to be discouraged, and we have every reason to pursue such spiritual growth. No reason to check out. You've been enabled by his divine power. It is possible for you to possess these qualities and grow in them. So Peter says we are to make every effort. We are to involve ourselves wholeheartedly. We're to bring all our energy to bear and growing in these Christ-like qualities. We are to pursue them with eagerness and diligence and zeal. Make every effort. The first Christ-like quality that Peter mentions is virtue. And, and as we go through these, I do have these application questions on your sermon card. We'll consider the second one. What qualities in verses 5 through 7 have you been most deficient in? How might you start growing in them? Just want to call attention to it because I wonder, I'm like, do anybody, does anybody read those questions and, and answer them? But they're there for, for some reflection on the content of the sermons. But I want you to reflect on it now as we're going through this list. And again, not as a, a sense of... Uh, discouragement, but just to, to do some checking. And when, what qualities in this list have you been most efficient in? And, and know that it's the Lord's will for you to grow in them. And how might you start doing that? Keep that in mind. The first Christ-like quality Peter mentions is virtue. This is the, the same word that is translated as excellence in verse 3. Same word. It is moral excellence. It is exceptional, praiseworthy character. Exceptional, praiseworthy character. 
It would include faithfulness, like such character would include faithfulness, integrity, dignity, fairness, purity, and kindness. Those are praiseworthy qualities. If you're truly being virtuous and having praiseworthy character and, and embracing these kinds of qualities, you are not seeking to work an angle or to win awards. You're not acting in this way in order to seek the praise of others. You are simply seeking to do what is good and right in the eyes of God for his glory and for your joy. That's what virtue is. And if you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in virtue. That's the first quality. The second Christ-like quality that Peter mentions is knowledge. Knowledge in, in this context is not referring to generic or academic knowledge. It's referring to a personal and relational knowledge of God in Christ obtained through the scriptures and demonstrated through faith and obedience. And that's kind of a loaded definition, but it's necessary. Because if we just said it, a personal relational knowledge of Christ, a lot of people claim to have that, and yet they don't. Because they have some idea of Christ and God that is divorced from his self-revelation in the scriptures. It is knowledge here, true knowledge, is a personal relational knowledge of God and Christ obtained through the scriptures. And it doesn't stop there. It's demonstrated through faith and obedience. That's really the, the point of this, having this kind of knowledge. And our, our knowledge of God increases as we become more personally acquainted with his will and his ways, with his character and his commandments, as revealed in his written word. Not as we go out and empty our minds and just meditate somewhere. You're not going to get to know God better that way. He has revealed himself in the word. And it's as we seek to draw near to him and learn of him that we become more acquainted with him. And of course, we're, we're drawing near and doing this because we want to know him and we want to submit our lives to his will. Not just study this as a bunch of facts and content, so I have Bible trivia stuff or whatever. Head knowledge, relational, personal knowledge. And God has given it through his word. If I want to grow in that, I need to be in the word. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, maybe some of you have this as a memory verse. It's a very good one. It says this, Prophet Jeremiah, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Right, his own wisdom, right? Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Who cares? But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight declares the Lord. Notice how he's speaking of his character. That is something to boast in. 
That is something to be proud of, that you understand and know the Lord. You have a saving knowledge of him, personal relational, relational knowledge of him. Consider the, the Apostle Paul's prayer for the church at Colossae. One of my favorite passages and favorite prayers recorded in Scripture. And it's in Colossians chapter 1 and just the opening of it, verses 9 and 10. But the, the Apostle Paul wrote this. And so from the day we heard, we have, not to, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. That is the kind of knowledge that we want to have. That is a Christ-like quality. And if you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in your knowledge of him. It's not about being a very smart person. It's not about being an, a superb reader, a bookworm, Right? It is about a heart that wants to know the living God, who wants to know the Son of God, the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and is approaching the Word to do so, and he will make himself known to you if you come to him in faith. The third Christ-like quality is self-control. Peter mentioned self-control. This is the personal exercising of restraint over your own fleshly impulses and desires so that you are not dominated by them or driven by them. Self-restraint, self-control of your own impulses and desires so you're not dominated or driven by them. And that really applies to the whole self. It's keeping your eyes in check. It's keeping your mouth in check. Tongue does a lot of trouble. It's keeping the rest of your members in check so that you may lead a well-ordered and disciplined life in accordance with God's will. Self-control. If you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in self-control. How's your self-reflection? What qualities do you feel like you need to excel in? more. The fourth Christ-like quality is steadfastness. Now, this is the, the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. And no, we're not talking about waiting in a long line at the grocery store. Steadfastness, the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. More specifically, it is patient endurance through the pressures of trials and temptations. Patient endurance through the pressures of trials and temptations. In other words, it is, it is the moral determination to remain faithful to the Lord when the going gets tough. And the going will get tough. Maybe for some of you, it's tough right now. And it has been for a while. Well, steadfastness is the moral determination to remain faithful to the Lord in such times. The going will get tough. The Lord said to his disciples, temptations to sin are sure to come. He said, 
In the world, you will have tribulation. We need steadfastness to honor Christ through hardship. We need steadfastness to remain in the truth while being ridiculed and reviled. Steadfastness, and if you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in steadfastness. Now, just being vulnerable here, honest, steadfastness, that's probably, maybe, maybe, I don't know if you agree with me, but of all the qualities, that's the one I, I probably feel the least confident about saying, got it, yep, yeah, I'm going to work on that. Because the other ones, it's like, I can get the work now, but steadfast, I don't know. I mean, we'll see. I hope I remain faithful when the, the going gets tough. I want to be faithful to the Lord, but we don't know until that difficulty comes. So and if I think about, well, how might I work on that now? Maybe it's, well, one is praying that the Lord might prepare me for such times. It's also growing in these other qualities and being strengthened in my faith so that my faith is strong when those times come. And I'm not taken aback and surprised by them. Now we look at the fifth Christ-like quality that Peter mentions. What does he mention? He mentions godliness. Godliness. This is basically loyal devotion to God that is demonstrated through obedience to his commandments. Loyal devotion to God demonstrated through obedience to his commandments. It is being in the world and not of the world because you belong to Christ and are committed to serving him first and foremost. If somebody looked at you, would they say, that's a godly man, that's a godly woman. The synonyms are pious, devout. But essentially, it's, it's, it's loyal devotion to God, and it shows in your life. He's, a priority, he's the priority, and it sets you apart. But hey, if you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in godliness and to be a godly man, to be a godly woman. The sixth Christ-like quality is brotherly affection. This is specifically referring to having a love for fellow Christians. Of course, literally means love for brothers, family members. And it's really referring to those in, your, in a close circle. So sometimes people outside the family, but still in your close circles. But in this context, and a lot of times in the New Testament, this word is used, it's speaking of, of having love for fellow Christians. All who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ have also received adoption as sons into the family of God and our brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't we? Brothers, sisters. Brotherly affection is having a genuine concern for one another and a willingness to bear with one another. We're in the family of God. We're kinsmen spiritually. We should have a genuine concern for one another. That's brotherly affection, a willingness to bear with one another. Brotherly affection is displayed through our mutual kindness, through hospitality, through service, through encouragement, admonishments, and prayers for one another. It's displayed through our willingness to put up with each other. Maybe that's something 
we need a lot more of these days. People are so quick. As soon as they get offended, I'm out. There's 10 other churches on the block. I'm going to find one that's acceptable. I'm out. Rather than working through problems, difficulties, working it out. Just jump ship. But real brotherly affection would be a determination to, well, to give, give each other grace and put up with each other. Patient, bear with one another, forgive one another. Belong to the family of God, working things out. The Apostle Paul exhorted the church in, in Romans 12, 13. He said, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. You shouldn't have any problem opening your home to anybody in this room. Those who are brothers and sisters in Christ seek to show hospitality. He also wrote, the Apostle Paul also wrote in Galatians 6.10, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. See, it's not that we have, you know, our little club, our little bubble. We ignore the rest of the world. It's like, nope, you're not in the church. I'm not going to love you at all. Well, no, there's just a, 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 a priority, a, a, a special care and concern for those who belong to Christ, who are of the household of faith. Do good to everyone, but especially to those who are of the household of faith. Fellow Christians should have a special place in your heart. We are kinsmen according to the Spirit. Do you ever sense that? When you come to meet believers that for the first time or whatever, maybe you're in a new location or something, there's some kind of sense of relationship already. Am I the only one who senses that? I know it's kind of subjective, but I really think it's just the reality of the indwelling spirit who has united us to Christ and to one another. And again, the Lord knows there are such things as false Christians and stuff, but in general, I think we, we sense that, that spiritual kinship. And there is a, a, an affection that arises for people because they are Christians. If you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in brotherly affection, even with those difficult ones, towards those difficult ones. And that brings us to the seventh and final Christ-like quality in the Apostle Peter's list, and that is love. The love mentioned here is agape probably familiar with that term, right? It is agape. And this is the love that is intrinsic to God. That's what sets it apart. And if we were to define it, we could say that it is deliberate, selfless, sacrificial action for the good of another. It's not feelings. I feel stuff for these people over here, for this person over here, who, who's, who who's, has desirable qualities. No, it's actually, I'm deliberately 
going to selflessly, sacrificially act towards that person for that person's good, even though they're really not desirable at all. It's this determination to act towards another for their good, even if it costs you. It's action. This is, well, it's at the end of the list, not because it's at the bottom of the barrel. It's, it's at the end because it is the supreme quality. It's the, the climax of the list. Love is, is the greatest of God's commandments. Love is the summation and fulfillment of his law. It is the first of the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5. Love, Paul says, binds every Christ-like quality together in perfect harmony. It is the most excellent way. And if you are in Christ, then his divine power has granted you the ability to grow in this kind of love. Deliberate, selfish, selfless, sacrificial action for the good of others. His power enables you to do that, to grow in that. And now we've come to verses 8 through 11, in which we see the promise of stable ground for those who are pursuing spiritual growth. Stable ground with respect to our hope of salvation. In verses 8 through 9, we read, For if these qualities, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love, if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective, that is, inactive, idle. They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful, unproductive, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Well, we know that the, the Lord's will is our sanctification, and growing in Christ-likeness must remain our central priority and continual pursuit. We must always be striving to be making advances in it. And Peter says that this pursuit is what keeps us from experiencing spiritual atrophy and short-sightedness, which results in us, well, losing our assurance of salvation. Our assurance that we ourselves are truly saved comes from observing the evidences of God's saving grace in our lives. And if you neglect to pursue growing in Christ-likeness and become ineffective and unfruitful in your knowledge of him, well, that will leave you full of doubt, full of questions, even fear, because you're, you're living like a nominal believer at that point. And again, keep in mind, we're not talking about losing your salvation. The true believer cannot lose their salvation, but they can lose their assurance because our assurance is based on what? Observable evidence. We are looking for fruit, right? 
our, our faith that we're justified by faith alone, but it's not a faith that is alone. It ends up, it's a living faith that works out righteousness. Our sanctification, we see that. John talks about in First John, he talks about how you may know that you have eternal life. Well, he kind of categorizes in three, three categories of evidence. One is continuing and remaining in the truth concerning Christ and the truth of the gospel. The second is obedience to the will of God and holiness, putting off sin, pursuing holiness. And the third is, uh, well, love for God, a love for Christ, a love for his people. Because it's, it's easy to say you love God whom you haven't seen, but the one who does not love his brother whom he sees, well, he's revealing that he doesn't truly love God in Christ. All right? So faith or the truth, obedience, and love. There's evidences. And seeing these evidences of, of Christ-likeness in our life, that gives us assurance. So when we neglect to grow in these things, to pursue them, we become ineffective and unfruitful in our knowledge of him, and then we lose our assurance. We're not sure. We have doubts. However, the Lord provides a way of escape from such low points and Peter makes it clear that you can indeed be assured of your salvation. He doesn't just leave you there if that's you. He says in verses 10 and 11, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, the seven that we read, if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. There's a direct correlation between, again, your practicing of Christ-like qualities, pursuit of them in your life, and your assurance. And essentially, your, your effectiveness and productivity and service to the Lord, your assurance of his salvation. And he says, you will never fall if you're practicing these qualities. It confirms your calling and election. Diligently do it, you will never fall. And for in this way, he says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because you are living in his will, you are doing exactly what he's called you to, and that entrance will be glorious and richly provided, and you'll be certain of that. There won't be any doubt or wavering. So our pursuit and practice of Christ-like qualities just so we're clear, does not contribute to our salvation, but it does confirm it. Our pursuit and practice of Christ-like qualities are evidence that we are among the elect of God. Our pursuit of these things is a, is a sign that we are truly saved and headed for future glory. And the question is, are you pursuing them? Does this mark your life? Does this, do you possess these qualities? As he said, if they are yours and are increasing, do you possess them? Do you desire to grow in them? Are you pursuing them? The Lord Jesus called us to his own glory and excellence. That's our calling. And his divine power, as Peter said, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness so that we are enabled, we are enabled to pursue conformity to his likeness here and now. Right? Your, your sanctification is active. 
you to be, you're to be proactive in that. You participate. It's not passive. You don't come to believe the gospel like, all right, change me, Lord. Sit on the couch, waiting for you to just, you know, what is it? Let go and let God? Bad theology. Eh, you know, you're going to let go and lose your assurance. If you're even saved in the first place, right? Where's the fruit? And just for a quick bonus round. I was kind of, you know, it's, it's hard to just cut Peter off. This, this is just tying a bow on the end of this word of exhortation he's given. Listen to what he says. Let's, let's read verses 12 through 15, wrapping it up. What does he say? Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Hey, when we went through them, you're like, yeah, yeah, yep, know it, mm-hmm, working on it, right? But listen to what he says. Though you know them and are established them, I, I intend always to remind you of these qualities. Verse 13, I, I, I think it right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder. Hey, that just happened this morning. Since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. To the end, he is reminding them, exhorting them to grow in their sanctification to pursue Christ's likeness. He knew he was going to be executed. His time was up. But he wanted to leave such an impression on them, so it's as if he's, he's speaking to them even now, or after he's gone. And of course, we, we have this in Scripture, right? Given by divine inspiration, part of the canon of Scripture, God's word given to us, so even us, we can read. It's as Peter is making this appeal directly to us even today. And you've got to think about his situation at this time. We don't know if maybe the Apostle Paul was already executed. But you have essentially the reality that the Lord ain't coming back just yet. And the apostles, well, some have been executed. Some have been martyred. Their time will come to an end. And they want the next generation to be faithful to Christ after they're gone. So the urgency is here, and this is the priority for Peter to get this message across. The fact that he knew he was going to, mar to be martyred and chose to write this letter in order to issue, issue these final reminders shows the high level of importance he placed on our pursuit of sanctification and increasing conformity to Christ-likeness. We should take note of that. So our prayer this morning, may it be that we will all strive to fortify our faith with virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love so that we will never fall. And let's encourage each other in these things. Let's pray. Father, we're so grateful for your word. It is living and active. And when we read it, we are, we are reminded of these very things that Peter so wanted to remind those he was writing to in his day when you were bringing his earthly ministry to a close. 
We pray that we would take that to heart, to know that the same urgency is for us, because we know that there are many who might profess faith in you or, or have some kind of outward uh, form of uh, belief and yet deny you by their actions and, and be a stumbling block for people who are actually trying to submit to your will for their lives. We pray that we would not be led astray by those who would deny the importance of growing in holiness and Christlikeness, that we would take sin seriously, that we would put it off and put on Christ-like qualities because your will for us to be conformed to the image of your Son. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you that your divine power has enabled us to do these things. We pray that your grace and peace would be multiplied to us, that you would, by your grace, by your spirit, that you would continue to do your work in us and help us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling and also knowing that our hope is certain. You have, you have ensured our glorious end because you have atoned for our sins. You've paid the ransom. We belong to you. And you'll see that work through until we see you as you are and are made like you in glory. Help us to pursue your likeness now. Help us to submit our lives to your will and follow after you above all else. Amen.